Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word. And so this morning, I pray you just open up our hearts to it, guard our attitudes, and that we respond faithfully to you. Lord, I pray that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the saddest stories that I have heard when you compile a lot of sad stories is by a man named Hiro Onada, who served in the Japanese military from 1940 to 1974. And most of that while he was in, stationed in the Philippines. What makes this story so sad was that he lived, they sent him to the Philippines during World War II, and they said, whatever you do, don't surrender. Uh, whatever happens, don't surrender and don't kill yourself. And he never found out that the war didn't end. And he stayed in the Philippines. They'd, he'd find tracks about 1945. They sent little pamphlets out that said, hey, the war is over. You can come home. The war is over. He didn't believe it. He thought it was all propaganda. And from 1940 to 1974, he hid in the jungles of the Philippines, thinking the whole time that the war was still going on. He just died in uh, 2014. But he was fighting a war for years that was non-existent. And he was living in a culture that was completely ignorant of his presence. And he was free to leave, but he failed to live as a free person. As a tragic story. And as we go through, going through the book of First. Peter, the last three weeks we've been looking at how we relate to culture, how we, uh, our resources to help us relate to culture, how do we respond to culture. And we, we said that our resources are we are being called as Christians to be on a mission. We're on a mission that God has called us to. And the, 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 the resources that he's given us is people. He's given us the church collectively, and he's given us the power of the gospel. And the way that we respond to our culture is to protect ourselves. We need to fight against sin. Before we point the finger outside, we need to point our, look at ourselves and repent and protect ourselves and fight against the passions of our flesh. Then we need to put God first, and then we put ignorance on pause. But how do we do that? That's engaging our culture. How do we relate to our culture? How do we engage our culture? This week I collected so many blog posts and news articles that all talked about our culture today and just the, the secular reality of our culture. We live in a secular 
culture, which I would say secular is just life apart from God, outside of the world. They live life as if it's apart from God, and the tide has turned in American Western culture. And we saw that all week long, and you'll continue for us to see it. But how do we engage that type of culture? That's what Peter's dealing with, people who were marginalized, who didn't have a say, and he has been telling them, live as the people of God, live free. And that's easy for us, I think, sometimes to see that part of culture, the secular part of culture. But there's another part of culture that I think we sometimes forget about. Our culture, not only in the world that we live in right now, even amongst the Route 34 corridor, is turning faster than we realize. But there is a seductive nature to culture that we might not even recognize. Our culture, someone said, our culture today consists of offers, not prohibitions, propositions, not norms. Culture today is engaged in laying down temptations and setting up attractions with luring and seducing. That's what culture wants to do, and we live in that culture. There, we, we, we live in this culture that not only we can say it isn't living for God, but also seduces us to not live for God, to buy into, to be consumers of everything. Make your life as, mis- as, as easy, as comfortable as possible is the culture that we live in, and do it however you want, and especially do it apart and away from God. And how are we as Christians to live that way? Peter says to live as people who are free. The thing with culture is culture is all about your identity. We, we get our identity, in many ways, from our culture. This, yesterday I was down in Peoria, and there was all kinds of people there from all over the state of Illinois. And I'm walking around, listening to all these parents talking to their kids. And I'd walk to different sections, and I'd hear a southern accent. And it would be like, that. they're not from around my area. And southern Illinois is different from northern Illinois. And just in little things like our accent... In simple little ways, it defines who we are. It makes us who we are. Culture does that. It's our, how we identify ourselves. And the first half of 1 Peter, he's been saying this to us as Christians. You have to know who your identity is. Because if you don't know your identity, culture wants to draw you away from God, and it will do that, and it also wants to seduce you in many ways. But you have to know your identity. And he said, this is who our identity is. If you're a Christian, this whole first half of Peter, he says you are chosen by God. You're ransomed by God. There's been a great price that's been paid for you. You're born again. You've been brought out of darkness. You have tested genuine faith. The Holy Spirit sanctifying you. You've been called to be holy and you are been called to glorify God. That's what the Bible says. That's what Peter says. That's what the identity of Christians is. That's how you got to see yourself. we got to see ourselves as chosen by God, ransomed by God, born again. We've been brought out of darkness. And we are to live under the word of this. That's what as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. We are people who live under the word. We don't get our identity from a culture. We get our identity from the word of God. And the Bible gives us an identity. And he says, as you then know your identity, as you go out this week into the Route 34 corridor, he says it is to live exemplary lives so that the evil that's spoken against you 
turns to glorifying God. That's the goal, or should be the goal of Cornerstone Church Christians. That you go out this week and you live exemplary lives so that when your evil is spoken, when your good is spoken evil of, that that gets turned in such a way that those people who are speaking evil of your good end up glorifying God, which means the book of 1 Peter and how you relate to culture is very evangelistic. He wants people, it says, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that day of visitation could be when Jesus comes back, but I think the day of visitation is really that when these people are speaking evil about you at work, when you're doing your job and you're doing, and they know that you're a Christian and they just say things about you that maybe aren't true or untrue, they just don't understand you. And you're doing good that the evil that's said about you gets turned to the point when on the day of visitation, when God comes to them and the Holy Spirit draws them, they see their need to become Christians and they, that, that turns them because they say, Hey, I worked with that guy. I worked with a guy who lived a life differently and that draws them. To Jesus Christ. How are we going to do that? How are you going to relate to your culture that way? How are we supposed to do that? The first thing we always have to say is our enemies are not people. That's the mission of the church is people. We don't fight against people. We fight against principalities and powers that want to destroy other people. And we are just beggars trying to show other beggars where to find bread. But Peter gives these group of people, the group of people he was talking to were absolutely marginalized from their culture. The people thought these Christians in Paul's day were cannibals. They thought that they had a poor way of treating their children. All of it was not true. But when the Bible talked about communion, they didn't understand communion. Uh, they, just, they just thought that they drank people's blood. They, were, they thought they were a fringe cult, and they were completely ostracized by their society, and it was totally turned. But how as we go into a culture that constantly is changing, how are we going to engage the culture? How are we going to relate to our culture? And I think Peter says there's just, he gives us very good ways. The first thing he says to us, I believe, is we need to have right assumptions about our culture. He says, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How do you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? You know what the ignorance is about. And in our society today, in America, in Western culture, Christians, if we're not careful, we've completely missed history. There's a lot of Christians who will, will rant and rave about things that are not based off any of historical facts because we don't know our history. We pretend too much that we are the first people in the history of the world to deal with the changing culture. It's not true. We're not the first people to be in line to try to figure out how do you live in a chaotic culture. How do you think? We're not the first ones that have to think about these issues. We have to know our history, which we need to pause and Think, are we even asking the right questions? If you grew up in the 80s in church, and your view of how Christians relate to the world is based off of a lot of sermons that you've heard in the 80s, and that's the extent of how you've progressed, you're asking all the wrong questions to deal with the culture of 2016. 
We don't know our history too well. We need to pause and think about the culture today and evaluate the history of it. And we need to come to it with great honesty and unbelievable humility, is what Peter says. He says, for, those, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people and live as people who are free. And we'll always live in this tension, the Bible says. There's the, the gospel's at stake. When Peter and his, in Acts chapter 5, when, when Peter was, said, I'm not going to follow what the leaders said, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. Talking about Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has chosen to those who obey him. So clearly there's a time when we're supposed to make a stand against what our culture and society says. But that stand that they were making was based off of the gospel was at stake. And they constantly lived in this tension of how we do it. We have to have right assumptions about our culture. And Jesus answered this well. When Jesus was based on his culture, Mark chapter 12, which was really what Peter talked about the gospel, they, they came to Jesus and they said to Jesus, they're trying to trick him. In Mark chapter 12, they're trying to, trying to figure out, are we going to follow the government? Are we going to follow God? And how should you do it? And it says in Acts, Mark chapter 12, verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you, are a tr- that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to follow the culture? Are we supposed to follow God? Are we supposed to honor? Are we supposed to not honor? And they did it as a trap to try to trick Jesus. And Jesus gives them a, a masterful answer. He says, give me a coin. And he picks up the coin and he looks at it and he asks them, whose likeness or whose image is on the inscription? And they all said, well, Caesar's. And they thought they had him. Because if he said to pay taxes to Caesar... Then he was, they knew that Caesars and Roman empires, they perceived themselves to be gods. And when they took over a country, they would have, they would bring in their gods so that they, they wanted the people that they took over to worship their gods so that they would then, when they would all be on the same page of their deity. To be the emperor was to consider yourself a god to the people. And so they thought they had Jesus tricked when he asked that. He says, whose likeness or whose image is on the inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things and to God the things that are to God. Which is a masterful answer. And all of them went away knowing that they, weren't, they did not trick Jesus. 
Because Jesus said, and they would have known, when he asked whose image is on there, he was asking whose image. Man was created in whose image? He was created in God's image. And so really, Jesus just flattened it all out when it comes to who they should worship. There is no greater deity than God. And there is no image that is not... God made man in his image. So he's saying we must give ourselves. If you live in a place, you're supposed to worship God. And in the places you worship, if they ask you to give taxes, God made man in his image. There, there was no division there. You worship God and you pay your taxes. They weren't tricked at all. They had wrong assumptions. And here's the problem with our culture. And Christians in our culture, if not, we're not careful. That we have the wrong assumption. We consciously or subconsciously believe. And we act as if God is unnecessary. And maybe even unwilling to form a world of peace and justice. But we think, fortunately, we're powerful people. Because we live in a democracy. And we're free to use our power. And it's really all up to us. And that's why Christians, if we're not careful, we get too wrapped up in trying to change our culture in a way that God never intended it to be changed. We think that we're the powerful ones. That God's not able to do it. That we've forgotten that the earth is the Lord's. And that we're not writing our own story. We are part of God's redemptive story that's been going on from the beginning, from Genesis. This isn't new. This is all part of God's story. You're all in God's story. You are not the main characters of the story. God's the main character of the story. And we are to be a part of his story. So we have to get our assumptions correct. And that's what Peter says. Listen. He says, put to ignorance, put to pawn, pause, ignorance. But you have to know people. And the way you do that, the way you engage our culture to do that is we've got to have the right assumptions. We have to be asking the right questions of our culture. We have to ask, be asking the right questions of what they're even asking. But then we need to rein in our attitudes. Because he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. And he says, live as people who are free. Honor everyone. How can you live as somebody who is free but yet you're supposed to honor the emperor who's in charge of you. How is that possible? How do you live as free people, yet we're supposed to honor people who are above us and it feels like they make us not free? How do we do that even in a democracy? Jesus says we do it with right attitudes. Live as free, not, but not using your freedom as they cover up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Listen, if you're a Christian, you are the most free of anyone. Which means we are free to honor the emperor. We're, we're free to honor him because we honor him because we honor God first. So when the emperor or the leaders or people we don't agree with politically or even in, in, in other situations at work, we can honor them and even honor their positions because we honor God first, which frees us up not to get worked up over certain things that we can just honor people. Which is the default mode of every Christian, or should be. That's why Jesus said in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or 
conceit. Put others above yourself. And if we're going to engage our culture, if you're going to engage and affect the Route 34 corridor at your workplace, you have to rein in your attitudes, which is why the challenge I gave last week to try to spend 14 days not speaking or using the tip of your finger to post things that are negative or attacking or about just the way the things are in the news. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because our natural response is to put ourselves first. And we see something on TV, we don't like it. And we see it on social media, we want to react to it right away. Because we want to put ourselves first. We have to rein in our attitudes. Peter says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to everyone. Live as people who are free. Free people don't have to get all worked up over other people that they disagree with on social media. You can let somebody else just be wrong and you can still honor him. We don't have to badmouth our political leaders just to do it. It's wrong as Christians. We are supposed to be in subjection and honor to them, even if you disagree with them. It says, honor everyone. Honor the emperor. And the emperor that Peter was talking to about was Nero who killed more Christians and was probably one of the worst emperors of all time against Christianity. But Peter said, honor him because of the position that God has placed him in. Because this isn't your story. This is God's story that he's writing. Someone said, how you live as a Christian is the greatest apologetic for the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. Which means what you say And what you show is describing what you really believe. And if you want to reach that person at work, but all you talk about is the negativity of the culture, it's not going to draw anybody in. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We're supposed to have reigned in attitudes, and we need to have right actions. And what are the right actions That he says, he says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom, though, as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The way that we are going to engage and see the culture changed where people are going to have their lives turned to glorifying God is by having right assumptions about our culture, right reined in attitudes, and then just have righteous actions. But he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Who's the brotherhood that he's talking about? What, what would be the brotherhood for these people? It's the church. It's their fellow Christians. It's their other Christians. The righteous attitudes, that we, the righteous actions that we need to have that's going to transform the world is being committed to the church of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, when these Gentiles came to Jesus towards the end and they wanted to talk to him, they wanted to discuss things with him, Jesus says this to them. He says, verse 31, he says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and these came to Philip 
and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus heard that these Greeks came to see him. And he says to them in verse 31, as he responds, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law and that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. When these people came, Jesus said, Listen, I'm going to, I'm going to die. And I'm going, to lead, I'm going to draw all people to myself. The people that Jesus drew to himself is the church. The church is the most counter-cultural political institution there is, if we really understand what we mean by polit- politics. That's what Jesus called you to do. If you want to radically see the culture changed, commit to the church of Jesus Christ. That's how the world always will be changed. That's how the world always has been changed, because that's Jesus' plan from the beginning. He says, I am going to die, and I'm going to leave the light. And he says, you are the light of the world to the church. And it's the church and people committing to the church and, and the life together, through their, those act, righteous actions, their worlds will be changed. You say, this doesn't really make much sense. How does it happen today? What does it actually look like on the Route 34 corridor. Here's what it looked like for you to have right assumptions, reined in attitudes, and righteous actions. With all the chaos you hear going on in the world, all the news feeds that you see, all the things that you think are, are, aren't going to figure how this, this God's going to work this out, all the chaos are we gonna go, are going on, how are we going to change and engage our culture? I would submit that you commit to the church, and you connect your story with somebody else's story. You take your life, and you invest it into another person's life in this church. You find somebody, a young person, you say, listen, come watch me. Come connect with me. Let me talk to you about God. Let me see where you're struggling. Let's read the Bible together. Let's pray together. Let's serve together. Let's serve together at VBS. Let's serve for a week at Royal Family Kids Camp. Let's be a part of the food pantry. Let's invite our neighbors over for cookouts. Let's be the church in the Route 34 corridor in such a way that people are connected. And as you connect with people, someone's life is going to see who Jesus is. And who knows what God's going to do with that. The way God designed the world to be changed is through the church of Jesus Christ, which why there is no such thing as lone Christians. It's always a corporate event so that one day there will be a culture of people that are praising and serving the greatest God who is to be honored, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to sit on his throne high and lifted up. Revelations chapter 22 says, one day there's this culture coming. This is a temporary world that we live in. And one day there is a world coming. It says that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will, be, will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
That's the call of Christians. That's your call as a church. To invest all the time that you spend complaining and criticizing into turning that into ways to invest in people and things that really matter. In Matthew chapter 25, the master had some servants. And he gave some of his servants some talents. He gave ten talents to one, five talents to another, and one talent to another. And the one who had ten ta- five talents went and invested it, and he got ten more. The other had two, he invested it and got more. The one who had one, he took it and he buried it in the ground. And the master came back and said, you wasted it. You wasted everything that I gave you. But the others, he said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. The problem is, all of us are like the guy who had the one talent. We've all gone our own way. We've all taken the talents that God's given us, and by ourselves, we've buried them in the ground. And we've rejected what God intended for us. But the good news was, there was one who came. And did exactly what the master wanted him to do. Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death we couldn't do. So that God could say to Jesus, to his son, Well done, good and faithful servant. And because Jesus did that for us, because God said that to him, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, He can say the same thing about us, and he does say the same thing about us. He looks at us as righteous through Jesus Christ, and he says, well, and he can say, well done, which means we have the ability then to go out and do what he has called us to do. So we need to guard our assumptions. We need to rein in our attitudes, and we need to look for ways to participate in righteous actions. And even though every day we'll hear chaotic things about our culture, and things may turn faster that we want to imagine. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and because of the call that he's given to the church, we can leave every single day by the words, and live by the words of this old song, Fear not, little flock, whatever your lot. He enters all rooms, the door being shut. He never forsakes, he never is gone, so count on his presence in darkness and dawn. You engage the culture by trusting in Jesus Christ and pouring into the bride of Jesus Christ, which is his church. And as you do that, we can live by faith and not fear, but keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed, just for a moment. The question I want you to ask is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, who and how are you pouring into the life of the church of Jesus Christ? How are you committing and seeing that? And ask God to say, reveal to me how I can do this. Reveal to me, Holy Spirit, how I can be a part of what you left us to be a light to our culture.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be a body, to be the church. God, if you help us as a church to form our identity, not as individuals, but collectively, as the whole, as the bride of Christ. And through that, God, I pray you'd use us to reach the Route 34 corridor, to reach our neighborhoods for your glory, and we give you great honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.